if he would have told me when I talked to him, look, I had sex with her that night, she spent the night, and then we fell asleep, and then we woke up and I had sex with her again in the morning, I would have closed this case that day. Is that by saying that, by saying, by blaming it on the jury pool, you're essentially saying, we're not going to stop sexual assault, period. I mean, by taking that tag, they're essentially saying to perpetrators everywhere, you are free to rape because we think it's pretty hard to prove these cases. Was it a criminal sexual assault? No. Is he guilty of being, you know, less than a gentleman? Absolutely. Who in the hell is writing their opinion in a report, but I'm hoping it's not our agency. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for meeting with me yeah, today. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. Um, obviously, like, I have some things I want to start by saying, and I'm probably going to cry this whole time, but... And I have notes to help, so that's why this is here. But I just want to say that it's not easy for me to come in and talk to you face-to-face -face after being humiliated and invalidated and blamed and shamed and scrutinized like a criminal and not believed. What do you do when you know that your case is going south, that it's not being investigated correctly or really at all? And on top of that, the way it's being handled is to try to bury the good in your character as a victim? to paint you like you're not a righteous victim, and to make you feel like you deserved it and to humiliate you until you go away. What you're hearing is some audio from a meeting I called with a detective on my case, the sergeant of the unit, and what was supposed to also be the lieutenant, but he didn't show. I called it because I could see what was happening and I knew it was wrong. A series of odd events that I still don't completely understand led my detective to say some pretty weird things to me that I'm not going to get into right now, but the bottom line was that they were trying to get me to disappear, to stop fighting for myself and for potential future victims that I sought to protect in the first place. This meeting was about three months after reporting being raped back in December of 2017. It took a lot to lead to this moment and wasn't a choice made lightly. It was the first time in my life that I felt so strongly about what was happening, and that it was so blatantly wrong that I couldn't let it go. I had to confront it. I couldn't accept what the system was doing to me, and more importantly, I couldn't accept the excuses that I was being given. Excuses that could be, and often are, applied to any case involving the investigation of a sexual assault. So I made a list of extremely specific questions, questions about specific statutes that related to the privacy of documents of mine that were freely going to be shared, although they were irrelevant or should have been protected by medical laws, questions about what had actually been done to investigate the suspect, what would be done going forward, and to finish off why I was being treated the way I was. It was a turning point because it was the first time I called them out directly for not doing enough, so this is what that sounded like. It was obviously a really difficult and emotional meeting for me, so sorry to have you listen through all the tears. I'm still willing to persist and put my very limited time and energy and resources into holding this individual accountable for his actions because I can't bear the thought of future victims and their families suffering the way that I have and suffering the way that I'm sure others have if he continues to go free. And it's incredibly disappointing for me to hear that even though everyone seems to be in agreement that he's a rapist, that instead of using your unique power to do the right thing and further investigate him to the best of your ability, that instead you choose to be complicit in a system that everyone knows is broken and fails victims and fails communities, 
by finding ways to cast blame and judgment on the victim. The burden of your inaction doesn't just fall away into nothingness. It falls directly back onto me, and I'm going to have to deal with the consequences of reporting a crime that led nowhere for the rest of my life. And even though I'm sure that everyone believes that he raped me, that's still the case. So I'm just here to assert my rights to be treated with dignity and respect. And I have some questions for you that I hope will lead to even minorly minimizing the pain that this is causing me. And to challenge the idea that only if you had more detectives on staff then more rapists could be held accountable because no amount of extra staffing is going to change the attitudes that this agency is directly complicit in perpetuating. So I understand that most people are very jaded by the system they're working in and feel that they can't do anything about it and have been part of it for a really long time, but you guys have a very unique position and opportunity to make a difference in a system that is just wrong. So I would like to know what you're going to choose to do about that. I play this because it's not like no one was aware of what was or wasn't going on. It's not like I didn't fight for myself. It's not like I didn't try at all. I was absurdly persistent and it still didn't matter. And I've heard from many people that it's society's fault for not caring more and not demanding more. Well, this is a member of society. I did everything I could to demand more. But I can't change a system filled with leaders that refuse to listen and workers who refuse to care. And in case you're wondering, this was basically just followed by an incredibly long and awkward silence, no eye contact, and a tangible feeling of deflation in the room. It was also later in the meeting met with this response. I, I see why you'd feel the way you feel in that opening kind of onslaught. An onslaught. And this perfectly wraps up so many people's feelings that I've heard from about investigations, survivors who I've spoken with, which works out because today we're wrapping up investigations. We're going to be talking about how investigations actually end, which can be a number of scenarios that we're going to quickly go over and then talk about what happens when there is probable cause to make an arrest and get into the weeds of what probable cause actually is and how it's actually applied, which are two different things, as you'll come to clearly see. And we're going to finish up with the importance of report writing, writing good, detailed police reports, and why that's so critical when going to bring a case to a district attorney's office or a county attorney who's going to be making the decision of whether or not to bring charges forward. And this is all once again very important because, as you may have guessed by now, detectives do not receive nearly enough of the training that they need to be able to write detailed, thoughtful, thorough reports. We can't get into that without knowing what probable cause is and knowing more about the standards of proof used in the criminal system and the differences between them. Here's how it's supposed to work. The two most important standards of proof involved in criminal cases are probable cause, which is the proof required to make an arrest and beyond a reasonable doubt, the proof required to make a criminal conviction in court. These are often thought of in terms of percentages. Probable cause is supposed to be around 51%, which is pretty low. Would a reasonable person look at the facts and say, yeah, that person probably did it? That's all that's required of law enforcement to arrest a suspected rapist. Yet, the national average for this is still only around a 5% arrest rate, so we'll talk about why that number is so low, given the low burden of proof required. Beyond a reasonable doubt is more like 99% certainty that a person did it. It's a lot more rigid. And this is problematic in rape investigations because, as you'll hear throughout, detectives like to think in terms of prosecutors when they're building their case. 
We'll get into plenty of examples of that shortly. And when you have an investigation that isn't really done or is done incorrectly or is missing huge valuable pieces of evidence because of pure negligence, that brings us back to the probable cause for an arrest and the pathetically low 5% national average arrest rate for this crime. But there's more to it than just that, and I think everyone should know about it. Almost every time I've actually asked a detective about probable cause and to give me an example of what that would constitute for an arrest in their mind, this is the answer I get. A witness, a confession, and or DNA evidence. For real. Hear it for yourself. Probable cause would be when you have enough evidence to substantiate this happened, right? Um, for example, the easiest way to explain the sex assault case. A victim comes in and says, uh, this person had penile vaginal intercourse with me. It was non-consensual. This person says, I never touched that person. Never touched that person. Their DNA comes back on the victim. That's probable cause to say that sex assault happened, right? Because you have a complete denial over here of, well, I never touched that person, that never happened, versus this is what happened, and DNA comes back to substantiate and support the victim on that case. Mm -hmm. So that's that's probably like the easiest case to kind of show probable cause on. Does that, that, that makes sense? That answers your question. Well, I kind of wonder about that because um, I feel like that's sort of, like leading into the territory of like beyond a reasonable doubt like this guy saying i've never touched that girl and she's like no he did and he raped me and then the dna is there so i guess like i guess even though probable cause is supposed to be kind of around like a 51 percent benchmark is that what's actually used yeah i would say in, in any case ultimately what we look for when you look at law enforcement and you say our goal or or our to, to make an arrest is probable cause once you have enough to say, yeah, I think this happened, you're still not done building your case. Because ultimately what happens is we submit our case to the county attorney's office and then they review statutes and they do whatever um, they feel is right, whether they support charging, they change the charging, or they don't charge at all. Um, the stronger the probable cause, obviously the more likely you're going to get charging. The example that I gave, I just tried to show like sort of an extreme example. It doesn't necessarily mean there's uh, beyond a reasonable doubt because then secondary interviews happen and maybe stories change or whatever or hey i was nervous the first time i talked to you but we take all that stuff into consideration but that's just showing like a very clear-cut example of probable cause of dna comes back probable cause uh, but there are other circumstances where it's much less than that where we'll make an arrest recommend charges to maricopa county attorney's office and then allow them to make an educated charging decision again that was greg bacon and that was his explanation of probable cause he says it's an extreme example, but I kind of wonder about that because it definitely wasn't the first time I heard it. The first time I heard it was actually in that meeting back in December that I played a little bit of earlier, you know, the one referred to as the onslaught, and I asked them to explain to me why, in my case, I didn't meet that standard of proof, and I asked them for an example of what they considered to be probable cause, and this is what I heard. You know, the scale, I guess, of probable cause. And is so, there like a rubric? Is there like a grading rubric where you check things off and, and you're like nine out of ten? All right, no, we can do it. We don't. It's 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 not. It's more subjective than that. There's not right. a checklist. Can you give me an example of something where you have like like probable cause? We've got DNA evidence. We've got witnesses, and we've got a confession. Okay. We've got. I mean, but I mean, like that—that that sounds very much like 
above and beyond like the 50% and a feather kind of proof. Yeah, I'm going like, through like, mine the, is like the last cases I've got. Um, I, you know, I, I've told you from the beginning, I felt like there was probable cause. DNA witnesses a confession. How likely is that to ever happen in a sexual assault case? And why, when it doesn't happen, do they not go looking for the other evidence as someone like Keith Graves would go looking for? Which, again, in case you missed it in the last episode, he would go looking for everything from videos to witnesses to people that the person had sexual contact in the past to different computer devices to basically everything under the sun that you could possibly imagine could tie that individual to the crime. And on top of that, it's really disheartening to hear your own detective say that he believes that there's probable cause, but when he went to make that arrest, his sergeant failed to let him complete it. But perhaps the most alarming perspective came from the top down, as it typically does. When I spoke with the captain of the unit, here's what he had to say about probable cause. If it was a strong enough case, he would have already been arrested. In other words, if we thought we had probable cause enough to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he was responsible, that he did what he said he, that you said he did, we would have arrested him. And we did. Mm -hmm. We thought we had enough. Just in case you didn't catch that, he literally said that probable cause needed to be up to beyond a reasonable doubt to make an arrest, which is not how that works. Those are two different standards of proof, as we mentioned earlier. But I'll let him continue. Uh, they interviewed him. Just to clear that up, no, they didn't. He lawyered up. And, and often how this works, we think we have enough to arrest them. And it's, it's, it's tricky and it's hard to explain sometimes what probable cause is. Probable cause basically means he probably did it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Familiar, yeah. it's, it's beyond a preponderance of the evidence. It's probably up around 70%. You know, some people say it's only under 51, over 51% possibility beyond a preponderance of the evidence. Some people say that, as in everyone who actually follows the letter of the law. It's like 51%. I say it's a little more net. If we're going to arrest somebody, we got to have pretty good evidence, I think. I'm not going to ruin somebody's life, whether it be yours or anybody else's, just because, hey, I got a hunch. I think he did it. It's got to be more than that. I got to be able to prove it. I got to have evidence to prove it. I don't have to have overwhelming evidence, but I have to have enough that a reasonable person would look at this and say, yeah, I think he did it. That's what probable cause is, to be honest with you. So that was the super special and very confusing and also inaccurate definition of probable cause that I got from the captain of the entire unit for the jurisdiction where I reported this crime that hovers around having a 4% arrest rate for sexual assault every year. So that helps to explain some things. But it doesn't make it right, and they do need to actually fix how they do their job to be doing it correctly to be doing it by the law and actually making arrests when they know they have probable cause they can do it and not just making that arrest but actually following through on the booking would be great and given the five percent arrest rate again nationally for the country i think it's a pretty safe bet to say that this is often how it goes in many other police departments as well so a huge part of this problem is, like I mentioned, detectives are thinking of these cases in terms of prosecution. They don't think of probable cause as the terms of them being able to do their job to make an arrest. They think of it as, if we make an arrest, is this going to go to trial and do we have enough evidence beyond a reasonable doubt? But that's not their job. And this came up time and again, which was really easy to illustrate in my case. 
For now, I want to finish this episode up by talking about report writing. So after all of this is done, or not done, depending on the jurisdiction that you're working with, after everything, the detective is going to be making supplemental reports either along the way or maybe just writing it all at the end or the beginning if they never really follow up. And this report is so incredibly important because this is what a prosecutor is going to see. And I interviewed a few people to talk about the importance of report writing. But once again, before I get into that, I think it's really important to talk about the different scenarios that lead to a report being so important. It will be no matter what, but here are some of the different scenarios that happen. So as we talked about, the investigation is finished, probable cause is established or not, and that matters for a couple of different reasons. The investigation is either going to lead to an arrest, to a case being closed, or it's going to lead to it being presented in what they call long form to a county attorney. So in scenario one, if the officer who's assigned to the case decides that there's not enough evidence to make an arrest and there's just never going to be, they will go present it anyway on what I've heard detectives refer to as case clearing days or desk clearing days, where they'll go bring a bunch of the cases they just need to get off their desk present it to the county attorney, explain that they have nothing that can bring the case forward, and they close the case. Again, this is one thing that I heard from one person in one jurisdiction, but it seems and was spoken in a way that made me feel like it was likely a common practice, and I encourage everybody listening to find this out from their own jurisdiction. How are these cases dealt with that allegedly just don't have enough evidence to do anything with? The second scenario is that there's either an immediate arrest or close to immediate arrest. And after that arrest, this time clock starts for 24 hours. So within 24 hours, at least in the jurisdiction I'm in, although I'm pretty sure it's common around the country, the person who was arrested has to have their initial arraignment within 24 hours and be formally presented with their charges. So at that point, the county attorney's office sort of has to be on board with what's going on, although that's not necessarily true or the case. But that's a lot of times how detectives will think in terms of things when it comes to making an arrest or choosing to hold off on making an arrest. After that, that person would be out on bail and then they'd have their cases going forward. Or if a county attorney looked at what was going on and decided that they didn't want to do anything past the arrest, they could drop the charges after that and the case could never go anywhere, and they may never have another court hearing again. Scenario number three is that there's no arrest, and then the detectives continue to build a case. It's very common that they might be in contact with county attorneys and working on what they need to find out what they need to do to further build the evidence in their case. And so this is a pretty common thing that happens. After all of that, an arrest may never happen at all, What could happen is a detective would write what they call long form, as I mentioned, which is basically just their police supplements, bring all the evidence that they have to the attorney, present it, talk about the case, go over the nuances of it if they're actually taking it seriously, and then it's up to the prosecutor and their office to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to file charges. If they do file charges, an arrest is usually surpassed and they'll bring it to a grand jury most often, and the grand jury will hear the evidence um, from basically specifically the side of the prosecution or the state, and 
Um, all they need is prob probable cause or a preponderance of the evidence, same percentage, 51%, to be able to indict that person on charges. And from there on out, again, a case would be built and go forward. So it's a little confusing. There's different ways that it can happen, but essentially there's those three scenarios. Nothing happens, an arrest happens, and then either a case happens or doesn't, or there's no arrest, but eventually charges are filed and there's an indictment which initiates a criminal process to continue going forward. So in these cases where you're relying on the detective's supplements, supplemental updates, and their report for the long-form presentation to the county attorney's office, here's why that's important. Like I mentioned, I talked to a few different people about this. One of them is Giles Feinberg the victim advocate who works for the DA's office out of San Francisco. He was the first person who gave me a little bit of insight into this. As I understand it in our county, the way it's done is it's very important. Um, an initial report is going to give a managing attorney an opportunity to examine um, the beginning, the, examine the evidence that we have and see is this case provable beyond a reasonable doubt. So an initial incident report um, is going to be very helpful and it's going to let the prosecutor know one way or another if we need more or, or, or if there's enough, if there's enough or if there's more. But what if there's bias that's written into that report? On top of whether or not they write about the things that they did or didn't do for the investigation, what about if there's blatant bias that's written into a report? such as having someone's opinion written into a report, an opinion that is not based on fact and that is not accurate at all and is used to be biased against the victim. What does the prosecution think when that happens, as I mentioned, was very evident in my case and in other case reports that I had looked through from my own jurisdiction. To get a sense of how difficult that would be or not or how much weight that carries, I spoke with Jessica Rock, who is a prosecutor and who um, has worked a lot on different kinds of sex crimes over the years. And I had recently seen her do a webinar on helping police write better reports. So I thought she would be the perfect person to interview for this project and for this topic. She had a lot to say. Different ways I can explain this. For one, it's obviously crucial that police are writing good detailed reports for any type of case because what happens is, and I think I probably talked about this in, on the webinar, the defense attorneys and the defendant are usually the first people to get a copy of the police report. It's just the nature of the way the criminal process works in that law enforcement, once they, you know, because obviously a defendant, if, if somebody gets arrested for a crime, well, they know they got arrested. And one of the first things they're going to do, especially when they're being accused of something serious, i.e., you know, or some other type of felony, they're probably going to go straight to somewhere and get a lawyer. And that lawyer, the first thing they're going to do is send, they're either going to go themselves or they're going to send their assistant or something to go directly to the police department and get a copy of the police report. And the reason for that is a defense attorney wants to know what he or she is dealing with um, in terms of what am I going to be faced in this type of case. If I, if I decide to take this person on as a client, what is it that I'm going to be dealing with? And so, of course, they want a copy of the police report. They want to see what the allegations are. And so if a police officer writes a police report that is not detailed, not thorough, um, you know, then the defense attorney's perception of that case is obviously going to be, oh, you know, this, what, this, this isn't really that big of a deal or, 
oh, we can probably win this case, so to speak, and I say that term loosely. But the reason I say all of this is because, number one, and there's tons of reasons why a well-written police report is important, but especially because it's the first perception people are going to get of what the case entails. And not only is the defense attorney going to get the police report first and, and make kind of their determination as to how they see the case, the prosecutor, the prosecution's office is, you know, prosecutor's office is also going to get a copy of that police report, and that's how they're going to initially decide what is going on with that case. Um, obviously, you know, we're going to go a little bit further as prosecutors, and we're going to, you know, contact the victim, and we're going to, you know, the information and talk to them about the victim's bill of rights, and there's a lot of things we're going to do with the victim that the defense attorney is not going to do. But when it comes time for a motions hearing or court, and we go to trial, if there's something that's not written in that police report, it's just ammunition that a defense attorney is going to have against either that victim or that police officer. Um, and I'm not saying that victim necessarily because they're not the ones writing the police report, but it may be that there's arguments that come up, well, did you tell the police officer that? You know, if it's not in the report, you know, there's just all kinds of reasons that it gives the defense attorney to 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 make um problems with a case that shouldn't necessarily be there or wouldn't necessarily be there if a police report is really well written. I don't think police officers get near enough training on the importance of writing police reports. Um, and it's something that I think we really need to work on and something that I stress in every training that I do is how important those reports are. Sometimes judges even let those police reports go back with the jury. Um, it depends on the case, but I have had it happen before. Uh, so, you know, it's just one of those things that um, it's an important part of their job, I think, that over my 10-year career, I certainly saw some police officers who wrote really, really good, detailed reports. And those were some of the best cases. On, when I say best cases, I say you know, the best cases in terms of being able to prosecute it to the best of my ability because it started out with a really well-written police report because that's the first thing that happens in, in a case like that. So she explains that as far as prosecution goes and continuing on in the criminal process, initial reports are extremely important and they give a first impression of a case which can't be taken back. So I asked her what happens if a detective does write an unfair opinion in a police report. Well, you may have heard me say this also in that webinar, is I tell police officers don't write your opinion in police reports um, because I don't think that's the appropriate place for an opinion is in the police report. They should be only writing facts and stating about what they heard, smelled, saw, you know, what they did, what they didn't do, etc. Um, there's all kinds of reasons why that initial opinion could change down the road um, or change with further investigation. Uh, and and certainly, if a, a police officer is concerned about something in particular, it's certainly a conversation that they need to have with the prosecutor. It's certainly a conversation they they should be able to express their opinion to the prosecutor about, you know, a case unfolding. But in terms of what their opinion is without them actually knowing all of the facts, I think they have to be really careful with that, and that's why I tell them don't put your opinions in police reports. Um, 
if they think that there is enough probable cause to make an arrest and that's what they do, they should stand behind their reason to make an arrest, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense to me. It's very disheartening when people don't stand behind their decision to make an arrest. It comes across as pretty spineless. So to Jessica Rock, she has it pretty clear that reports are not the place for an opinion to be written, which is exactly right. It should be a neutral fact-finding report only. However, when I asked her about how that changes her decision to make a case, and I basically said, so what you're telling me is that it doesn't really end a case for you, she wanted to make it very clear to me that that was because she's been in the field for a very long time. Here's what she had to say about that and how it could negatively impact others. I say this because of my, um, you know, many years of experience of kind of trying to navigate the best way to do things. And I've certainly realized that having a police officer's opinion in there, which could completely change two days later with further investigation or what have you, I don't think it's the appropriate place for it. They need to put facts in the police report, why they did something, why they didn't do something, um, Again, like I said, what they saw, heard, smelled, whatever. Um, but opinions can obviously cause cause problems um, because anything that's in that police report, they can be cross-examined on. And you know, if that opinion changes, it's not going to it's not going to be too good on the witness stand. She also went on to say that a police officer doubting the credibility of a victim in a report is going to cause a huge problem for her. So if they're not an expert and they don't have anything to stand behind their opinion, it doesn't belong in the report because it creates additional hurdles for prosecutors as time goes on. Again, I feel like it's very unlikely that cases that are having reports written like this are going to be going forward at all. I went back to Detective Greg Bacon to ask him a little bit more about his opinion from the detective standpoint and from the law enforcement perspective of what happens if there is an opinion written in a police report. And what should be done to clear the air after that, if you really want to hold up the integrity of the investigation? We are not and should not be writing opinions. Unless you have been declared an expert by the court, you do not make an opinion. What would you do if you found out a detective had written a statement like that? I, I've seen them in reports where, you know, um, the victim was not taking the investigation seriously because they were laughing. That's an opinion. That is not a factual. That's that's more of a trauma piece. That's an emotional response mm -hmm. to an incident. Um, I have read things like that, and those are things that we make phone calls on and educate moving forward. We can't change. We you know we can't go out and doc. Now they can supplement. We can ask them. Can you write a supplemental report stating that on this paragraph of this page you made this statement, which is strictly your opinion, and you have not been. I mean, it makes them look foolish, but it's something that's necessary. So I teach that. Do not, I don't care what your opinion is. I care what the facts are and what your investigation shows and what the evidence is. And that's what every investigation should be about. I asked him how damaging negative biased statements and opinions about victims written into police reports are to the case going forward. Um, it, it's tough sometimes to overcome that. It is because you have somebody who's writing that, um, for example through and i'm just making this up just thinking on top of my head through the course of my investigation i learned that uh had the victim not been drinking that this wouldn't happen because the victim when she drinks tends to have casual consensual sex right mm -hmm. holy mackerel i don't i don't know how you overcome that 
the way you overcome that is you have the person write a report stating that that was strictly their opinion and that there was no factual based information on that. And then you let that officer or detective go on the stand and just get smashed on the stand by the defense attorney as they should be. Which sounds nice, except for the fact that he's thinking that cases like this are actually going to go forward, which I'm not totally convinced is the case, given the research that I've done on prosecution and prosecutorial decision making. So I asked him for his opinion, too. How how likely is it that you're going to be willing to bring those cases forward? And, like, let's say a detective makes a massive blunder like that, mm -hmm. and they know they're going to be, like, crucified on the stand. Like, how likely is it that they're really going to do their best job ever presenting the case to a, a county attorney prosecutor who's going to make that decision going forward? They should, is it a valid concern? They should... It's a concern, but they should bring that case forward just as if it was the best case that they've ever investigated in their life. And the reason for that is we're human beings. We make mistakes. This is the integrity piece. How do you own up to that mistake? If you if you own up to the mistake of, hey, yeah, look, I, 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 I put an opinion in my report, right? I'm sorry I shouldn't have done that. However, I can write a supplement. I can talk about how that was an opinion because we can – we can get rid of opinions, even though a defense attorney is going to ask them, did you not make an opinion in your report that this person was, you know, um, has casual sex whenever they're drinking? Did you not make that opinion? Then you get into objections and let the courts decide whether that question should be answered or not, whether that information is relevant. It could very easily come, and I'll give a little bit of flip side of that. You own the mistake. You own that, that hey, I messed up. I made a huge issue but this person did something, we're going to arrest him, we're going to move forward with the charging. Where a defense attorney says, this is an officer with great integrity, we're going to take a plea. It might not be the same level of plea that we would have got without the opinion, maybe, maybe not. But it, it may work in the officer's favor a little bit too to be like, hey, I, I screwed up and I'm a human being. Mm -hmm. And I can explain it to 12 people sitting in a jury box who in their lives have also made a mistake. Mm -hmm. So, But I guess is it like I just sort of considering that it's – obviously a, a lot more difficult to own up to your mistakes and to try to clear the air than it is to deny and bury them <laughs> just assume it for anything no i like, agree you know but so like what's their who who holds them accountable to make sure that they're doing that right thing and they're being held to the highest level of integrity that we'd expect so twofold themselves mm -hmm. which may sound scary to some people that's very scary. Yeah, themselves <laughs> but if yeah. if other detectives like when i worked in svu mm -hmm. we all knew what each other what we did follow up together. We all know what we're working on, and we know if we've made a mistake, and someone else knows. So then now you're getting into, I made a mistake. I'm pleading with you not to tell anybody, right? And now you're getting two people involved in craziness. Now, you're, now we're talking about, I mean, look at the big picture now. You're talking about your career. You're talking about your pension, right? Those sound very personal, but what justice are we doing for the victim, most importantly? So you have to own that mistake. You have to. And so you're holding yourself accountable, your coworkers are holding you accountable, and your supervisor. In this career, and in this, in this, yeah, in this career, in this profession, there are very few things that an officer can do to be unforgiven for. It's true. We're all going to make mistakes. Lying, unforgiven. You, you, you can no longer be held in a position of trust if you lie. Mm -hmm. Right? Integrity is the whole core mm -hmm. of law enforcement. That is like the biggest one. There are very few things, and that is number one. 
Like if you lie, your career is over. You are determined. You are judged as a liar. So it's, you know what I mean. So I feel very strongly that someone who's working in sex crimes, no matter how big the blunder, will do the right thing. I absolutely love his optimism, and I want to believe that most law enforcement officers will do the right thing when they make a mistake, but I haven't really seen any examples where that has been the case so far. And maybe they're out there, but they certainly haven't been my experience or the experience of anybody that I've heard from. But it's a really nice way to mark whether or not the police department that you're reporting to does have integrity. Does the leadership have integrity? Do the people who work there have integrity? Or... Are you creating an environment where everybody's covering up for everyone else and then the actual root of the problem never gets solved? In my jurisdiction, it was pretty easy to see what was going on, especially when you listen from the top down and hear exactly what they consider to be probable cause and how they handle it when a victim comes forward and says that they know their case isn't being handled the way that it needs to be. And what about victims who come forward and say that there was something in their police report that they needed to report the officer about because it was completely inappropriate and unprofessional? At that point, should the detective cease communications with the victim? What's the protocol for that? What would a detective who values integrity have to say about that? A detective should never say they're not talking to the victim again unless the victim says, I don't want you to call me anymore. That's the only time communication should be completely shut off. Mm -hmm. I don't – if a detective is like, I'm not calling that person again because they were mean to me, then they don't belong in that line of work. Oh, sounds pretty simple. The overall message here is one of integrity as a high hope and the reality that the victim is negatively affected and the crime not taken seriously when integrity is lacking. Whether that be the integrity of the officer, the police department, the integrity of the investigation, or the integrity of a written report. This lack of integrity fails our communities. It allows rapists to walk free. It allows others to be hurt when a stop could have been put to it when it was reported the first time. I challenge the idea that if only departments had more detectives on staff, then more rapists could be held accountable, because no amount of extra staffing can change the attitudes that these agencies are directly complicit in perpetuating. For the next episode, we're actually going to be diving into investigations just a little bit more, but it's because we're going to be talking about a certain kind of investigation. Everything here you heard about the conclusion of the case can still be applied, but we're going to be talking specifically about drug-facilitated sexual assault and be hearing from experts who have been working for a very long time in the field of drug-facilitated sexual assault, including more from Keith Graves and also from a couple of other experts who have given great insight as I've gone on through this process. Drug-facilitated sexual assault is a growing issue. It's, I think, underreported given the various people that I've talked to and definitely needs a lot more research, but before that, also needs a lot more understanding. And that's why we're going to be spending a whole entire episode talking about its nuances. So thank you again so much for listening. Hopefully you'll come back for episode 6 to hear a little bit more about investigations before we finally move on into the next segment of prosecutorial decision making, what happens in prosecutors' offices. Thank you to everybody who's continued to share their story, and again, if you have a story that you would like or something that you would like me to talk about, I have been getting emails like that, and just know that you're being heard and I will respond to you shortly. 
If there's anything you'd like to get in touch with me about, you can go to survivingjustice.org to share your story or email me at survivingjusticepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much.